If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to open it to the book of Acts, chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. The passage that we're looking at this morning is one of my absolute all-time favorite passages in the Bible. Before we get to some of the specifics of this passage and the prayer that we find in this passage, I want to put a few things on the table in terms of the book of Acts. We're reading through the New Testament this year. We're preaching on Sundays from passages that you have read the previous week. And so this is our first Sunday morning in the book of Acts. And I just want to say a few things up front about Acts and build up to our passage in chapter 4. The Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, were both written by Luke, who in the Scriptures is known as the Beloved Physician. And we remember him as the close personal friend of the Apostle Paul. If you search for the name Luke in a Bible concordance or Bible software or Google, you will only find three passages. And I've listed them on your notes. You can see them up on the screen. His name only shows up three times. And if I'm being completely honest with you, uh, I would say that the oldest manuscripts we have of all of the Gospels, all four Gospels, and the book of Acts, do not have a name on them. It does not say written by so-and-so. But very, very old, very, very early church tradition identifies the first Gospel with Matthew, the second Gospel with Mark, the third with Luke, the fourth with John, and then the book of Acts again with Luke. This last Wednesday, we jumped into the book of Acts, and we talked about Acts chapter 1. If you just flip over to Acts 1, you'll notice that the first five verses are a bit of introductory matter. Luke explaining that he's written a previous book, that's the Gospel of Luke, and he's writing this book to talk about the things that Jesus continued to do. We looked at Acts chapter 1, verse 6 to 26 on Wednesday night, and in that passage, the, the disciples receive a great commission from Jesus. There's a great commissioning in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and a fifth one in the book of Acts where Jesus sends his disciples out on mission. And so we talked about that. We talked about the disciples praying and being together and listening to the scriptures and replacing Judas and all of those things. They were waiting in chapter 1 for power. Jesus had promised them power. And that power shows up in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost and fills the people of God in a way that the Spirit had not previously filled the people of God. Almost immediately, when the Spirit comes, Peter stands up. Peter, who is always saying the most foolish things in the Gospels, he stands up and he preaches a remarkable sermon, what we would call the first sermon in church history. And at the end of that sermon, some 3,000 people in Jerusalem repent of their sins, put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're baptized and added to that church. And at the end of Acts 2, Luke gives us a small, brief description of what things were like in that very first church in Jerusalem. So if you just Turn to your Bible to the end of Acts 2. You'll notice verse 42. This first church was devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and prayer. They were devoted to the prayers. You want to circle that idea, and we're going to come back to it. They were a praying people.
people. Luke says that awe came upon many souls and that the apostles were performing signs and wonders. And he says that these first Christians were selling possessions and sharing with other people in their church who had needs. They were a generous people. Luke says they were a glad people. They weren't a grouchy people, but they were a glad people. He says that they were praising God continually. They were a worshipful people. And Luke says people were being added daily to their number. People continued to put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That brings us up to Acts chapter 3 and 4. And those two chapters go together. Acts 3 and 4 together tell the story of Peter and John healing a lame beggar as they went to the temple to pray. And it tells the fallout from that miracle. Strange that there would be fallout from healing this blind or this lame beggar, but there was fallout. If you've read the, the window of chapters we've read this week, you read uh, Acts 3 and Acts 4. This man is healed. He's been lame for many, many years. He immediately begins leaping and dancing and jumping and celebrating. He's so excited to have the use of his legs back. And the religious authorities pull Peter and John aside the very same men who arrested Jesus and had him killed. These are bad guys. They're ruthless men. And they pull Peter and John aside and they say, do not talk about Jesus anymore. This is just three weeks, 40 days or so after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. Don't talk about Jesus anymore, which is a problem for Peter and John and their friends because Jesus told them, go out and tell everyone about me. And now the religious authorities say, don't talk about Jesus anymore. So take your Bible, look at Acts chapter 4 verse 8. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and he said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They put their heads together, the religious leaders, and they come back again and they say, we're warning you not to talk about Jesus. And this is what we read in verse 19. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, They let them go, finding no way to punish them because the people, for all were praising God for what had happened, what had happened to the lame man. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. That brings us to our passage, Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. And the big idea of what we're about to read is beautifully simple. Here it is. Christians pray. People who follow the Lord Jesus Christ are people who pray, people who talk to God, people who experience relationship with God 
through prayer. Christian people pray. Not because we have to, but because we have the privilege of talking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians pray. So, let's read our passage and then we will pray. Acts 4.23 When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Father, we stopped this morning, and we're thankful that you have spoken to us in the Bible. We have a true, sure, certain word from you. We don't have to ask to hear your voice. We can open the scriptures and we can hear from you. And Lord, we're thankful for the privilege of prayer. We're thankful for the promise that you hear your people when they cry out to you and when they talk to you, when they pray. Father, this morning, our prayer is that your word would shape the way that we think about you and the way that we relate to you and the way that we talk to you and the way that we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a poll recently. It was a USA Today poll taken among Americans. And the poll was very simple. The question was, do you pray regularly? Do you pray regularly? 90% said yes. They didn't define prayer. They didn't define who you prayed to. They didn't define regularly. They just said, do you pray regularly? And 9 out of 10 Americans said yes. They followed up that question with another question, and they said, what are the things that you pray for the most? Here's the top four. 98% said they prayed for their family. 81% said they prayed for children. It wasn't my children. It was just the category children. 77% said world peace, and 69% said coworkers. If you can get 9 out of 10 Americans to agree on anything and to do a certain thing, that's a pretty good percentage. Now, we're not talking about how they pray, who they pray to, what they're praying about, but 9 out of 10 is a pretty remarkable number, and you can do what you want with these statistics. I think just anecdotally, your experience has probably been very similar to mine. Most of the things that we tend to pray about are people who are sick, 
people who we think might die or people who have recently lost loved ones. I think that dominates most of the prayers of most people. And I just say that anecdotally because I remember being a young pastor in Kentucky. The first church I pastored was North Benson Baptist Church. It's out on Devil's Hollow Road. It's out west of Frankfurt. It's a very rural community. I had no idea what I was doing as a pastor when they hired me to pastor this church. And one of the things they said to me is, the pastor's in charge of the Wednesday night prayer meeting. And I said to them, I've never been to a prayer meeting. And they said, don't worry, we'll tell you exactly what you need to do. And so being the congenial guy that I am, I walked into prayer meeting and I said, okay, what do we do? Tell me how you guys do Wednesday night prayer meeting. And the basic gist of how they did Wednesday night prayer meeting was like a lot of prayer meetings that maybe you've been to. They spent about 30 or 40 minutes talking about everyone they knew who was sick. Sometimes in too much detail. This person's sick, this is going on, this is really bad. And at times, not all the time, but at times it felt like we were trying to one-up each other with how bad something was or how dire something was or how serious something was. So we talked about all of these sick people, 30, 40 minutes, and then we spent about five minutes saying, God, would you please heal this one? God, would you please heal this one? God, would you please heal this one? God, would you please be with them? They already died. Would you please comfort them? God, would you heal this one? You get the idea. So I sat in these prayer meetings as a new pastor for a few weeks, and I started thinking, should we be doing it this way? I'm 100%, 100% for praying for folks who are sick. I'm 100%, 1,000% for praying for people who have lost loved ones and who are grieving. I'm all for that. Your staff does that every Tuesday morning. We take the prayer requests that you've turned in, and we take the situations and the folks that we know about in our church family, and we share them. We don't spend 30, 40 minutes sharing them. We don't go into a lot of detail about your medical history, but we say we need to pray for this person. We need to pray for these people, and we pray for you. So I'm all for that. But as a young pastor, one of the things I did is I started reading the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, looking for prayers. Asking myself the question, what did they pray for? What were their prayer meetings like? What are the things that dominated the conversations they had with God? And this is one of the passages that has been influential in my thinking about prayer. Now, here's the deal. There's prayers in the Bible of comfort, of God's presence, prayers for healing, but that's not the majority of them. It's the majority of what we often pray for. It's the majority of our prayer requests many times, but it's not the majority of what you find in the Scriptures. And I look at this story of Peter and John and the first church and how they responded to this experience of persecution. I think it's very helpful lesson on prayer. How do we pray? Christians pray. What does this passage teach us about how we ought to pray? I want you to see several truths. Number one, Christians ought to pray when they suffer. When they suffer. That would be generally true for any sort of suffering that you might experience. 
physical suffering, the loss of a loved one, financial difficulties, job loss, any sort of suffering. But in this passage, it's particularly focused on suffering that you might experience because you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the specific kind of suffering happening here. It's why we talked about the rest of Acts 3 and 4. Peter and John were threatened. And you understand what those threats look like. Those threats look like the religious authorities saying, Peter and John, do you remember what happened to Jesus? You remember we had him crucified. Peter and John, you know that we have an in with Pilate, right? We're, we're good with him. You know that, right, Peter and John? Peter and John, it would be a shame if something happened to your family. You understand the kind of threats that would have been thrown about in this conversation. Jesus had told them, go tell everyone the good news about me. And these men say, don't tell anyone anything about Jesus or else. They are suffering because they're a Christian. If you paid attention to life in the West over the last 24 months, you know that there have been Christians who have suffered simply because they are Christians. I have personal pastor friends in Canada, men that I went to seminary with, who were fined and arrested because they wanted to meet together with their church family. Jesus told us to meet together. We feel like we need to do that to be obedient. They weren't being reckless. They weren't being disrespectful, but they felt like they needed to do that to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. They were fined, they were arrested, their church in some situations was chained. There have been Christians, not pastors, just Christians in the workforce, bakers, photographers, who over the last several years have been fined, have lost their businesses and their livelihoods because they said, I can't provide this kind of service in this kind of situation. I don't think my conscience in following the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord will allow me to do this thing. And there's been a consequence for that. I don't want to blow things out of proportion and have a big pity party and say it's so hard to be a Christian in the United States of America. I also don't want to pretend like it may not continue to get harder to be a Christian in the United States of America. If and when you suffer because you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, what should you do? Well, what Peter and John and what these first Christians did was they prayed. They talked to God. Why did they do that? Many times it's suffering in whatever form it takes. It's suffering that reminds us just how small and puny and helpless and confused we are. And sometimes you find yourself in a situation of suffering, whatever that suffering may be, and you realize, you know what? There's not many things in life I can change, and I don't have a lot of answers. But I know somebody that can change anything. And I know somebody that has all the answers. So I probably ought to talk to him about what's going on in my life right now. These Christians suffered because they were Christians, and instinctively, they prayed. Notice, 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 quickly. They did not start praying once the suffering started. 
They were praying in Acts chapter 1, praying together, waiting for the Holy Spirit. They were praying at the end of Acts chapter 2. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. They were like Daniel. Daniel didn't start praying when the king told him to stop. He simply went home and he did exactly what he had been doing before. They were devoted to prayer. And when they experienced suffering, the first thing that they did was to pray. Secondly, what does it teach us about prayer? Christians ought to pray together. They ought to pray together. Look at verse 23 and 24. When they were released... That's Peter and John, they, Peter, John. They, Peter, John, went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So they went to their friends and they said, this is what they told us. And when they heard it, the friends, the church, they lifted their voices together to God. They are praying together. I'm perfectly aware of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, when you pray, go to your home, go in your room, close the door, pray in secret, and your Father who is in heaven will hear you. I understand Jesus says, don't be showy about prayer. I also understand in the very next verses of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, and the model prayer starts like this, our Father. Not my father, our father. That's a plural pronoun. That lumps us in together. Jesus assumes that his people will pray, and he assumes that they will pray together. And there is something special about the people of God praying together. If the last 24 months have taught us anything about church life, it's that we can continue to do some things apart, but that being together is part of the deal. It's part of what it means to be a church. We ought to be together to pray together. Now, let's be real clear about praying together in this sense. More people praying for one thing doesn't make that prayer more powerful. How many of you remember, I don't think this is common, but how many of you remember getting an email chain forward to you about prayer? This seemed to be popular when email was a new thing and you would get this chain and it would have like 500 forwards on it and it would say, hey, this is going on. My cousin's brother's niece's stepson's dog had this accident and we're trying to rally 10,000 people to forward this email chain on. And we believe if we can get enough forwards, then God's going to do it. Maybe the modern equivalent would be a social media post. We just need, we need more people praying. And sometimes what's assumed behind that, it's usually not said out loud, but it's assumed that God is up in heaven like looking down counting. How many people are praying? One, two, three, four, five, six. I really like the number seven more than six. So I'm waiting on one more person. Is that how the Bible describes God? Is he like some corrupt, dirty politician who knows the the petition is coming for his recall, but he's waiting for the full number of signatures to be on that document, who's saying, I'm not going to do anything until you get the right number? That's not how the, the Bible presents God, our Heavenly Father. 
as he hears our prayers and as he listens to our prayers. The power in our prayers is not rooted in how fervently we pray and it's not rooted in how many of us pray. It's rooted in the God that we pray to. It's not a magical formula where if we can just get enough of us on the email chain or enough likes on the post or whatever, that God will then be backed into a corner and have to do things our way. So don't think that there's more power and more people praying, but understand there is something special when the people of God are together, praying together. It's not that it backs God into a corner. It is a powerful thing as you read through the Bible. Thirdly, what do we learn about prayer from this passage? Christians ought to pray with unshakable confidence in the sovereignty of God. In the 20th century, there were many liberal theologians becoming more, more prominent, saying all sorts of wild things about God, denying biblical truth. And one of the men who stood as a bulwark against liberal theology in the church was a man named A.W. Pink. He was a prolific author. He was not great as a pastor. He struggled as a pastor, but he was a tremendous author, and his books are read today. One of my favorite Pink books is called The Sovereignty of God. And in that book, A.W. Pink says this about God's sovereignty. When we say that God is sovereign, we affirm His right to govern the universe, which He has made for His own glory, just as He pleases. The doctrine of God's sovereignty lies at the foundation of Christian theology. Look, in Pink's day, there was all sorts of people, like there are today, saying God is not sovereign. Man is sovereign. God is not the final say. We are the final say. And Pink said, no, that's ridiculous. This is elementary theology 101. This is the foundation that God is God, that He's the Creator, and that He's sovereign over everything. That He made the universe and He can run it how He sees fit. Pink wasn't making this up. He was pulling it straight out of the Bible. Passages like Psalm 115.3. Our God is in the heavens and He does all that He pleases. He's sovereign, not us which is why we pray to Him. These Christians who are suffering and who are together praying had a rock-solid faith that God was sovereign over all things. Specifically, they believed that God was sovereign over creation. That's what they say in verse 24. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. You made Everything. You did it by speaking. It wasn't difficult for you. You're the creator of all that exists. You are sovereign over everything that you've made. Secondly, they believe God was sovereign over revelation. Not like revelation, the last book of the Bible, but like revelation, God speaking to his people. They quote Psalm 2. Psalm 2, which is a prophecy about the Messiah. A prophecy that looked forward to the Messiah. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, Psalm 2 says. But notice what they said. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Past tense. They understood that that prophecy had been fulfilled in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus. They looked back and they said, David wrote it, verse 25, the Holy Spirit inspired it. This was God speaking to His people through David, Psalm 2, and we've seen it come to fulfillment 
in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. God made a promise, a prophecy, and he saw it to fulfillment. His word is true. He's sovereign over creation, over revelation, and certainly over salvation. They acknowledge in their prayer that Herod, Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel gathered together against Jesus. Verse 28, they did whatever God's hand and plan had predestined to take place. They believed that God was completely sovereign over the centerpiece of our salvation, the crucifixion of Jesus, the Messiah. They believed that God was sovereign over creation, over revelation, over salvation. And their belief in God's sovereignty shaped the way that they prayed. I don't know if you noticed, in this prayer, they do not give God advice. Have you ever heard people pray where they're really just giving God advice? I won't ask you to raise your hand. Have you prayed that way? I'll be honest and tell you, I have. I've been in situations in life where I've talked to God and I've said, God, I kind of got this all figured out. If you would just do this, then this, then this, I think it would be much better. You ever prayed like that? That's not how they prayed. A couple weeks ago, my truck started making a horrendous noise. That's a problem for me because I don't know anything about vehicles. But lucky for, for me, I know a guy who knows a lot about vehicles. His name's Alan Ruley. He's a member of our church. His wife's on staff here. He works at Sewell Ford. So I called my buddy Alan, and I said, Alan, my truck's making a terrible noise. I'm going to bring it to you, and I need you to fix it. And he said, what do you think it is? And I said, I don't know. He said, well, what's it sound like? I said, it sounds horrible. He said, what do you want me to check? I said, check the truck. Just fix it. I don't know. I know nothing about cars, nothing about trucks. I could have said it's the carburetor, it's the exhaust, it's the fan, it's the hose. It's, I don't know. I don't have any advice for you. You're the expert, so I'm going to bring it to you and you're going to fix it. And he did. If it would be ridiculous for me to tell Alan Ruley how to fix a truck, how much more ridiculous when the creature tries to tell the Creator how to run the world. If you believe that God is sovereign over creation and revelation and salvation, there's no place for giving advice to God. By all means, bring your requests. The Bible encourages us, commands us to do that. Bring your petitions and your requests to God. Lay them at His throne but don't do it in an advisory manner. Do it with the heart and the mind that says, God, not my will, but your will be done. You're the sovereign one. I don't know much. I can't change anything, really. So I'm dependent on you, and I'm looking to you, and I'm trusting in you, and I believe that you're sovereign. Number four, Christians ought to pray for the advancement of the gospel. In the text, the prayer begins in verse 24 with the phrase, Sovereign Lord. That's where the prayer starts. Notice that it's all the way down in verse 29 until they ask God to do something. There's a lot of praying in the Bible where nobody asks God to do anything at all. It's 
worth thinking about in your own prayer life? Are my prayers dominated by asking or are my prayers dominated by the things that dominate the prayers in the Bible? They don't ask God anything till verse 29. And when they get to verse 29, they only ask two things. It's pretty simple. Number one, God, would you look? Would you look on the threats that have been made against us? We just want you to be aware, God. We know you're sovereign. We know you're in control. We're just asking you to look on this situation. And secondly, they pray, would you grant boldness that we would continue to do what you told us to do? Jesus told us, tell everyone about him. The religious leaders told us to stop. And we're just asking that you would grant us boldness to do what you told us to do. We know there may be a consequence. They don't ask God to take away the consequence. They ask that God would make them bold so that they might be obedient regardless of the consequence. What they're praying for is the advance of the mission. We want to be bold. We want more people to hear about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you a historical example of how all these things played out in one real-life group of people. In the 1700s in Europe, it was very difficult to be Protestant There were lots of people who would have called themselves Christians, but when you wanted to worship in a Protestant church, that was not easy. And in parts of Europe, persecution began breaking out against Protestant Christians. In the place called Moravia, what we would call today the Czech Republic, persecution was breaking out against Protestant Christians. Some of them stayed put, and they suffered through the persecution. Some of them decided to leave home, and they fled what we would call the Czech Republic, what they called Moravia. They ran away from Moravia, and they ended up in Germany. They ended up in a place called Herrnhut, Germany, which was part of the estate of a guy named, are you ready for this name? You heard some baby names this morning. Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. That's a great name. Count Zinzendorf. They ended up at his estate in Herrnhut, and he took them in as refugees. He had plenty of land. He had resources. He said, you're welcome here. You're welcome to worship freely. He agreed with them in their Protestant convictions. They formed into a church. And originally they called themselves the Brethren. Uh, historians look back and say these are the Moravians. So you can pick whatever, whatever name you want. The Moravians are there at Zinzendorf's manor, estate, land, whatever. And they decide to start a prayer meeting. They say, we need to pray. Early church prayed. We need to be people of prayer. So I started a prayer meeting. And originally there were 48 people, 24 men and 24 women. And the agreement is two of us are going to pray every hour of the day around the clock. So we're going to pray together, two of us together, in one hour shift, and we're going to go around the clock and we're going to pray. And we're going to pray for our friends and family who are suffering back in Moravia, those who are trying to get here. We're going to pray for the new church that we've started here. We're going to pray. For six months, they prayed around the clock, nonstop. Six months, around the clock, every hour of the day, two people praying nonstop. At the end of six months, more refugees had showed up, and other people, other refugees wanted to be part of the prayer meeting. And so after about six months, the focus of the prayer meeting shifted, and they said, you know what? We need to stop praying just for these refugees to get here safely. We're going to keep praying for that. We also want to pray that God would use us. Surely God's not done with us. 
we want to pray that God would use us to send out missionaries. We want to be a mission-sending people, a missionary-sending force. So they started praying. They just rolled that six-month prayer meeting over, and they start praying around the clock, every hour of the day, nonstop, that God would use them to send out missionaries. And after a few months, they sent out their first group of missionaries, 26. 26 missionaries went out, the first group. After one year, 22 of them had died, and two of them were in prison. And two were free telling people about Jesus. <laughs> That's kind of discouraging if you've been praying around the clock, month after month after month after month. They kept praying. And they kept sending. Their missionary force grew to 50, then to 70. They hit the century mark. They ended up with 100 missionaries on the field. Before long, they had 400 missionaries on the field. At the height of their mission-sending movement, the Moravians were sending one missionary for every four church members. Three were staying in Hernhut. One was going out. And the three were working and giving so that the one could go out. That was their ratio. It beats any missionary-sending ratio of any church throughout all of church history. Absolutely phenomenal. One out of four. That would be like a hundred of us leaving and 300 staying to send them. You look back and you say, how did they do that? How did this little pitiful refugee group of people who had no money, no means, no anything, end up as refugees in a foreign land and end up sending one out of four of their members to be missionaries? How did that happen? Well, they worked really hard. They used their careers, their jobs, their wealth, their livelihoods, their skills, their trades. They leveraged all of that to send people out with the gospel. And secondly, they prayed. Most importantly, they prayed. You remember the prayer vigil around the clock, six months? Then they start praying for missions and it just keeps going. People praying around the clock that God would use them as a missionary force. They went from six months to a year. They kept that going for a decade. They kept it going for two decades. And before it was all said and done, they had prayed around the clock for 100 years as a people. For a century. Think about how long a century is. For 100 years, they prayed nonstop around the clock that God would use them. You look at this example of the Moravians and you say, these are people who suffered. What did they do when they were suffering? They prayed. How did they do it? Well, they got together, initially with a buddy, two people, and we're going to pray together. We're going to pray together. They believed to the core of their being, that God was sovereign over all things. And they prayed that God would use them as a mighty, world-changing missionary force. Why did they do all that? Because that's what Christians do. We pray. Christians are praying people. Regardless of what we experience in life, our response is prayer. We don't just pray individually, although we do that. We pray together. 
We pray believing, not in fate, impersonal, uncontrollable fate, but we pray believing that there is a personal God in heaven who does all that He pleases, who knows everything and can do anything. And we pray that God would use us for the advance of the gospel. Let's pray.